This is the Cater Daily Podcast for Tuesday, August 22nd, 2017. I'm Caleb Brown. Protectionists don't have many successes to point to. Consider that the Great Depression was a key turning point against protectionism. So what do protectionists point out as victories for restricting trade? Doomed to repeat it, the long history of America's protectionist failures is the new paper by Cato adjunct scholar Scott Lincecum. The paper is available today. Donald Trump... Uh, Robert Lighthizer, Wilbur Ross, and Peter Navarro are the protectionist triumvirate plus yes. uh, President Trump. It, during the campaign, uh, Trump talked about he, – I don't think he he rarely seemed to use the word protectionism. Mm-hmm. Uh, he did talk about protection mm-hmm. uh, for – on behalf of American workers and, and punishing people who had done bad things right. to us by providing their goods at – Rock bottom prices, uh, and where do they point to yeah. as success stories of a policy at a particular place, a particular time that yeah. succeeded? Yeah. So the, the the first era is really between the Civil War and the Great Depression. Um, kind of this great industrial flourishing of the United States was actually a time of pretty high tariffs um, in a lot of areas. And when back when the Republican Party was the party of high tariffs, right? right? Correct. And so uh, the that so the first era that's always cited is uh, this this golden age of industrialization and protectionism. The so so this is a classic causation versus correlation thing. Um, essentially, seeing high tariffs and seeing industrial uh, and economic growth, and and uh, claiming that the former causes the latter. The reality is when you actually look at uh, both contemporaneous reporting on the era um, and subsequent academic analyses um, of the growth and what caused the growth, you actually see that protectionism hindered the growth, uh, that uh, economic growth during the era was actually driven mainly by demographic changes, uh, large influx in immigrants and very high birth rates. And it was that uh, demographic change that drove economic growth, um, as well as, of course, dramatic industrial innovations. Um, So the way that the scholars do this is they actually look at the most protected sectors and they realize that those sectors were actually (laughs) struggling compared to those that that weren't. And they, you know, doing some pretty fancy analyses determined that if the best you can say is that protectionism was a, a wash in terms of – but the more likely result is that it actually hindered economic growth instead of helped it. OK. So since the Great Depression, there are other examples yeah. that people point to and say, well, it worked here. Right. We know, we know how to make it work again. Right. So uh, the, the next era is really kind of the, the – so after um, – Smoot-Hawley, and I talk a little bit about Smoot-Hawley. Everybody knows that, what a disaster that was. But you know, so starting in the 1940s, uh, tariffs started going down overall. But we actually started seeing a lot of uh, discrete administrative actions, safeguards, trade remedies, anti-dumping and countervailing duty actions, so forth, take the place. So tariffs still remained pretty high. And so the next era is really the 60s and 70s. Uh, basically the 60s through the mid-80s, um, an era of, again, uh, great economic growth but certain tariff uh, or non-tariff barrier protection. So 
Uh, we then again look at the at, at the actual research. Now on, on Smoot Hawley, yeah, uh, that was broad based protection, right? Uh, broad based uh, tariff increases right. and other other penalties. Um, Following the Great Depression, it seems that it, a consensus emerged, yeah. uh, thanks in part to FDR. Well, yeah. Uh, so, but but it's what you're saying seems to be that the carve-outs began right in the 1940s to say, well, we all know freer trade is good, but right. these gonna, industries they need help, they need protection. So, what what? Certain anti-trade groups today will say is, well, look, we actually successfully used uh, safeguard barriers or anti-dumping and countervailing duties or high tariffs in certain areas from basically the 1950s through the 1980s. And we had this great era of industrialization. Um, and you know, clearly, those, that, was, that was a good thing. So again, what, what we try to do, what I try to do in the paper is go back and actually look at what happened. And one of the great things about this period is that there is an abundance of scholarship on uh, U.S. trade barriers from basically the mid-1950s through the 1980s. And study after study after study um, from uh, various think tanks, whether it be the you know AEI or um, Brookings or <laughs> Peterson Institute or government institutions like the FTC, the ITC, the Congressional Budget Office, you name it. So they all at this period tried to examine what did these protections actually do. And the amazing thing is that not only did these studies find that the protectionism during this area during this era imposed massive consumer costs on average of about $600,000 in additional consumer costs per year per job supposedly protected um, by the protection. So $600,000 in 2017 dollars per job protected per year it's an, on an annual basis. Uh, so not only did it impose a, ma a massive consumer cost, but it also didn't even save the industries that were being protected. And this is the part that I think is the most interesting part for the purposes of, well, should we look back at protectionism again as a policy? You know, everybody seems to admit, even the protectionist side seems to admit, look, you know, protectionism uh, increases costs, the cost of your appliances or T-shirts or whatever. Um, now, you know, most of us think that's sufficient. But the other side says, well, no, but at least we're protecting the jobs. At least we're protecting the industries, the American industries. Well, no, you're not. So study after study found that the objectives of the protectionism uh, were failures almost in all cases. The, the one case that proved to be successful was apparently the American bicycle industry was resuscitated. In all the other industries, you actually saw declining jobs, declining output, and the eventual bankruptcy of a lot of the companies that lobbied for protection only a decade after uh, you know, imposing these massive costs on the economy. So, so it not only hurts consumers, but it doesn't even work uh, in the end of the day. Was the bicycle industry saved by punishing cheap foreign imported cars? <laughs> right. Uh, it was so apparently um, the, the one of the more interesting things actually about the bicycle industry is that it really didn't even save it only saved the industry in kind of the holistic broad sense in the United States. Uh, in fact, the industry saved itself by moving southward uh, and uh, you know seeking lower wages and lower costs um, in other industrial areas. So so 
a lot of the bicycle jobs that were originally protected up north actually didn't exist either uh, by the time that uh, the protection was over. They just moved. And just move southward. This kind of data is, you know, enormously useful to be able to look at uh, over the broad sweep of history and find those uh, moments in time where that people point to as successes and find out that perhaps they weren't so successful. But there's a there's a moral component here that I don't think that that yeah. that side tries to claim, and the free traders have I think a much stronger moral claim to make. Right. And you know, so so all of this data is, are great and all of these stories I think are helpful. But you're right that you know what what protectionists claim to be the moral high ground um, is is actually not. And the reality is that that at the end of the day what what they are proposing is to use government uh, the levers of government to lobby the government uh, to impose higher costs on American consumers, particularly poor American consumers, in order to line their own pockets. Um, now, again, though, I think the historical record is really helpful in that it shows that they're not even <laughs> saving the jobs in the industry. Really, what what we see from historical protectionist policy is a lining of the pockets of kind of executives <laughs> in these companies and stock uh, shareholders for a little while. Um, but then the eventual failure of the company anyway. So it's not like we're providing you know, these good, solid, uh, lifelong blue-collar jobs either. So, so there's that, even that moral component is eroded. Um, and, and again, there's always the countervailing moral, moral arguments for, for the free trade side. Do you expect to see a lot of WTO actions by the Trump administration? I spoke with uh, Simon Lester recently about what we have seen and what we expected to see, and he said, "Well, we haven't really seen that much. No, not yet. But, but we've all, we've we've been expecting for a long time a whole lot of these uh, actions at the WTO over what may be just ultimately perceived slights against American markets. Right. And so so far we we haven't. Um, but you know we've only had a USTR in place for a couple months, and they have their hands full with a lot of other things." So, you know, it really, I think it's too early to really say. Um, but, you know, you mentioned the WTO and I think that's the other important part of the, my paper that, that comes in towards the end. That, you know, we, when we look back at the, the failures of American protectionism, um, those failures were actually, uh, they're likely to be far more muted back then, even though they were, they were big failures, but they're actually probably smaller then than they would be today. And the emergence of the WTO is one of the reasons why. And that's because the WTO has now created a new system whereby uh, governments can go to the WTO and petition um, or, or litigate uh, and win the right to, to lawfully retaliate against American exporters. And uh, not against the exporters that were seeking the protection. So, you know, we protect steel. It, they don't have to go about over against steel. They can go against agricultural products, for example. So the WTO has kind of shifted the dynamic and, and increased the potential costs uh, through retaliation that didn't even exist back, say, in the 1980s or, or before. So, so I think that that's the other thing to look out for. Not only the United States bringing more cases, but other countries bringing cases if we, if and when we step out of line. So when I, when I look at the broad range of interest groups that are uh, either interested in protection or virulently free traders, uh, I can only think of one 
that I know to be extremely free trade, that's the Consumer Technology Association, mm -hmm. formerly the Consumer Electronics Association. Is there something about the production of goods today that makes protection more punitive? That is, I'm, I'm, thinking, oh, of, sure. I'm thinking of the global supply yeah, chain. And so that's another thing that we talk about, that I talk about in my paper, is that uh, you know, another thing that amplifies the costs of protectionism in the modern kind of what the WTO era, which, which I also examine, um, is this the, the evolution of global supply chains. So now you have um, a lot of American companies who um, have certain uh, manufacturing, but a lot of design and engineering and other things in the United States. And then they do assembly or whatever in, in China. And so when you – because you have this, this global supply chain and it's not even electronics companies. I mean you look, auto, you look at the auto industry, for example, and it's kind of the North American supply chain. Um, you know, industry after industry has specialized in part due to a freer trading environment. Um, that amplifies the costs. And in fact, Dan Eikenson, you know, here at Cato, um, did a fantastic paper looking at, at anti-dumping and uh, countervailing duty actions, anti, uh, trade remedies actions, and found that the vast majority of the duties we have in place under those laws actually attack upstream inputs that are used by American manufacturers. So this ago, again gets back to the idea that, you know, it, it's mind-boggling to me that uh, past eras of um, protectionism are cited as some sort of example of what we could do today, not only because they failed but also because the global economy has changed so much that really, you know, because of, of this specialization, uh, you, there is no way to hurt them, quote unquote, without hurting us. And even if you're a mercantilist, you have to realize this. You know, there have been great analyses that have shown that the, um, the America's largest exporters are also its largest importers. And so you can't really be a mercantilist and preach unilateral protectionism. It just doesn't work. You're going to end up hurting exporters uh, just as much. Cato adjunct scholar Scott Lincecum is author of Doomed to Repeat It, The Long History of America's Protectionist Failures. Subscribe to and rate the Cato Daily Podcast at iTunes and Google Play, and follow us on Twitter at Cato Podcast.